Hello and welcome to the Leaders Sport Business Podcast. My name is James Emmett. I'm the Editorial Director at Leaders and with me as ever is my great good colleague David Cushnan. David, how are you? I am well, thank you, James. Good to be back. We're back, aren't we? We're relaunching the podcast, aren't we? This is the relaunch. It's You're listening to great. it. Great. That's why all the um, balloons are around and the, the hoopla. It's sounding fresh and exciting it's already. sounding very fresh and exciting. Yes, we're back. We're going to come at you on a weekly frequency uh, with uh, topical chit-chat from around the global sports industry. And we're intending to do it uh, with a little bit of form, a little bit of format, and a few friends from across the industry. And and a little bit of style as well. Well, speak for yourself, David, on that on that front. Um, today we have with us uh, one of football's um, uh, veteran commercial operators, Tyson Henley, uh, recently the chief commercial officer at AS Monaco and Nottingham Forest. He'll be joining us quickly. But David, what have you been up to? Well, lots going on. Uh, we are in the thick of uh, planning for final preparations we're always we're always planning at leaders uh, in the thick of final preparations for our first event in india where we will be in a couple of weeks and i think we'll be podcasting from there as well uh, we're heading to bangalore so lots of uh, speaker prep calls lots of conversations thinking about topics and format and uh, detailed logistical questions so many logistical we've questions just, we've literally just had a call with will brass um the chief commercial officer at the premier league love will brass always an entertaining man to talk to i'd say and he was on terrific form terrific form um and we're about to have a weekly project call with our partners out into the royal challengers bangalore which is going to be a lot of fun today i think yes indeed i was talking earlier to the uh team at dream 11 in fact i don't know why i said i because you were sitting next to me in the room um at dream 11 which is the fantasy platform harsh jane is the founder and will be among the speakers uh, with us in Bangalore. Very excited about that. More details on the website, I assume. Yeah, probably. Can I? Um, can we play a quick game, David? Yes. Which is let's try to give a flavour of what we're doing um, here at Leaders on a collective and individual level through the prism of our recent connections. We're a connections business, aren't we? Here and at Leaders, a, we're it's about a relationship connect- game. Yes, it's about connecting people with ideas um, and it is you're right a relationship game i i've got i've got linkedin open in front of me david okay your preferred social platform and um one of them just doing a little bit of research here david kushnan they call uh, this stalking don't they yeah i'm gonna see who you've connected with okay. recently and i'm gonna ask you to tell us why um here's an interesting one katie stamp global music and culture marketing coca-cola Mm, interesting. So I came across Katie in a list of people, a list of recommended is it recommended follows on the right-hand side uh, when I was checking out the are profile. You thinking, are you thinking about the Daily Mail website? Maybe I am. Maybe I am. We're talking about LinkedIn, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so Katie is uh, Global Music and Culture Marketing at um, a senior manager at Coca-Cola. And really, it was building on the session that... Coca-Cola delivered at Leaders Week London on 
an incredible session, actually, on artificial intelligence and the way they are using that to sort of democratise their brand design. Really, really interesting session, which if you have the ability, I would urge you to check out. And uh, yes, in the course of uh, doing a little bit of post-event digging around, connected with Katie. Mm -hmm. What about um, Tim Glass? Well, Tim Glass is the uh, broadcast director of Formula E. It feels like a man I should have connected with some time ago. But um, I think, do you have those people who you... You know, you know yeah. and uh, know of, yeah. but you have never quite gone formal on LinkedIn. I think you'll find when you return the favour uh, and have a look at my LinkedIn profile that, yes, I do. Mm. Simon Brownell. Uh, Simon Brownell, CEO of World Snooker, the yeah. World Snooker Tour. Somebody that I am not familiar with, but uh, we've got, I've got a little, I've got a little do, something do, do that you, I'm working on. Do you... Outreach, or do you, do you receive I, connections, or do you make them, David? I do both. Right, I've okay. not. Give and take. I'm not adverse to a, a spot of outreach Give on LinkedIn, like but a actually, traditional two-armed butler. Indeed, sort of. Mm. I've got uh, I've got a little something in mind for World Snooker that I'm not going to reveal, but uh, we might hear a bit more about in early 2024. Okay, right. Do you want to do the same for me then? Yeah, I'm just looking up. Um, few of your recent connections and i think this might be what you're referring to uh, you seem to have recently connected to richard masters the ceo of the premier League. yes this one i don't remember making this one it's been pending for a while I think. <laughs> <laughs> um but yes richard i was trying to get richard to speak in india to be honest um but we got will brass instead yeah uh, yeah i don't think richard is a prolific linkedin I don't know. Connected with me six days ago and sent me a lovely personal message. Oh. Yeah. Congratulating me on all my great work and wishing me future success. So thank you, Richard. <laughs> uh, talking of India speakers, I recognise this name, Sheikha Tandon. Yes. Um, Sheikha is a former Olympian. Well, once an Olympian, always an Olympian. And the um, partnerships director at a company called Svexa, based out of San Fran. Um, but she is from Bangalore and she'll be joining us in Bangalore in a couple of weeks as a speaker. Um, Svexa are a very interesting company that essentially have a platform that processes um, performance data or, you know, adds a layer of insight onto performance data. And she'll be a lovely addition to the programme. Interesting as well on LinkedIn um, that Olympians or people associated with the Olympic family put O-L-Y at at the end of their profile. Because it sounds like Olympics. Yes. Well, it looks like the beginning of Olympics. I'm also sensing a bit of an India theme with Nick Pinder. Yeah, Nick Pinder, um, ICC VP of Sponsorships and Partnerships. To be honest, don't know the guy. Um, Would like to. Um, but noticed that um, noticed that they're playing a cricket tournament in India at the moment. Okay. Um, but that the ICC are running an event there now. Cricket matters, um, and always interested in events in places that we're doing. Absolutely, uh, right. One of the things we're going to do each week on this new uh, newly relaunched podcast, which I do hope you're enjoying the sound of, is reviewing in short form uh, the week in the industry. Uh, So let's do that now, James. Yes, you turn this way and I'll turn around that way. And together we'll have the full 360 covered. This is 180 seconds of sports beers. 
And let's start in New York, where Donald Trump turned up at Madison Square Garden alongside Dana White at UFC 295 on Saturday night. White, though, has his eye on another big draw. That's the MSG Sphere in Las Vegas. After watching U2's show at the new venue, the UFC's frontman has booked it for a show next September, and he already has a team working on the creative. White's already claiming it will be the greatest live combat sports show anybody has ever seen. You'll be seeing plenty of of the sphere this weekend, Formula One has taken over the exterior advertising space as the sport sweeps into Sin City for perhaps the most souped-up sports entertainment extravaganza outside the Super Bowl, the Las Vegas Grand Prix. The sport is taking over the strip this weekend, working in lockstep with the major hotels and casinos, and there'll be celebrities and socialites in every nook and cranny. Significant moment this for Formula One, as for the first time it organises a race itself rather than effectively outsourcing to local promoters, and it's come at a significant price in permanent and temporary facilities. It's an effort led by CEO Rene Wilm and Chief Commercial Officer Emily Prazer. But many locals have been left less than impressed, to say the least, by the traffic and disruption, with a large part of the city resembling a construction site, rather less than tourist-friendly too for months now, and sky-high ticket prices have have dropped significantly, according to reports in recent days, suggesting rather less demand than originally expected. The build-up to the weekend in Vegas included Netflix's first live sports broadcast featuring the stars of Drive to Survive and Full Swing, otherwise known as F1 drivers and PGA Tour professionals, in a match play format on Tuesday. As Netflix tests and learns, the National Women's Soccer League found its proof point, a new $240 million broadcast rights deal with CBS, Amazon, Scripps and ESPN. That's a jump from $1.5 million a year to $60 million, with a new deal running until 2027. The broadcast partners have agreed to cross-promote each other's coverage in a collective bid to continue to raise the league's profile. And as the NWSL heads northeast on its media rights revenue ramp, Italy's Serie A is heading south. A 28 million euro annual decline is the result of a protracted negotiation in the latest round of domestic rights. Even an extended deal term, up from three to five years, couldn't convince Sky and DAZN to go any higher than 900 million euros a year, roughly half what the Premier League gets. An eye-catching acquisition in the venues game as Legends announced its buying venue management specialist ASM Global, the company that operates the likes of London's Ovo Wembley Arena. The price? It's said to be above $2.4 billion. A couple of other quick bits. A couple of seasons after ending its partnership with AS Roma, Qatar Airways is back in Syria, ah, this time signing a deal with Inter Milan. There's reportedly an option for a front-of-shirt sponsorship next season. And in India, the International Cricket Council has reported that well over a million fans have attended the Cricket World Cup, which after six weeks reaches its finale on Sunday, the tournament on course to be the most attended ICC event ever. And that was 180 Seconds of Sports Biz. This is the Leaders Sport Business Podcast. And joining us now is our guest for this episode, former AS Monaco Chief Commercial Officer, more recently of Nottingham Forest, Tyson Henley. Tyson, thanks very much for being with us. I mean, you're used to the exotic climbs of um, the south of France, and is it um, the Midlands? Is that where Nottingham is? Is that do we call that the Midlands? What are you doing here in rainy London, Tyson? Well, I've come in for I think a good open chat on our 
our uh, joint business interests in the, in the industry. So yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for the invitation. Our joint business interests sounds quite we formal, gonna, as if we, we're about to do a deal. We're going to do a deal on this. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I happen to know Tyson's in a spending mood, actually, because um, <laughs> he uh, he forgot his trusty umbrella today and had to buy one at WH Smith's. I did. Yeah. It was a major investment, but it did keep me dry. Exactly. You're, you've got to speculate to accumulate, Tyson. <laughs> so, uh, right. That was the 180 seconds of sports bit. A rapid fire run through what's going on across sport at the moment. We're going to... Um, Dip into that list and unpack, I believe is the fashionable verb these days, uh, a, a couple of those stories. David, let's come to you first. I know you're um, a keen motorsports fan, is that? Uh, you'll be you'll be wanting to talk about Vegas, right? The first time Formula One's been to Vegas. <laughs> no, James, no. Formula One is back in Vegas. It's the first time since 1982 that uh, Formula One has been in Vegas. Fair to say it's rather different this time to uh, what was a race around the car park in Caesars Palace uh, back then. First Las Vegas Grand Prix incorporating the Strip uh, this weekend, and it's very much the hottest ticket in town, or not, uh, but certainly it will be a magnet for all your favourite celebrities, business leaders, uh, the people who want to be seen, um, and it's it's going to be, on the face of it, a quite spectacular uh, televisual event, I think. Um, the race is at 10pm Saturday night, Vegas time, so it's a night race, uh, qualifying at midnight. Um, beneath the surface, though, um, obviously, this will be the third race of the season to take place in the US, which is, as we all know, a big new growth market for Formula One. And the one of the challenges, one of the many challenges of putting this race on is that it's obviously happening West Coast time at a time that sort of suits a European audience. Um, what it doesn't suit is the people on the East Coast of the US who are going to be uh, having a very late night, early morning uh, if they want to watch. A um, couple of things to say about this one. 100,000 people expected. Um, the prices are sky high. Mm. The hospitality is um, to a level that Formula One has not really seen before, and they've been working, and it is Formula One promoting this race rather than a local authority, but Formula One has been working very closely with the various hotels and casinos uh, on the Strip, and uh, there is all sorts planned in terms of uh, entertainment uh, you know, around the, the race itself, which could be as a sporting contest, fairly underwhelming. It's a very dominant season, as we know, for Max Verstappen. The World Championship's long since wrapped up. It's also going to be very, very cold mm. at night in the desert, mm. uh, which could have some implications for the race as well. So it's going to be a fascinating watch, I think, to see from a, a, an industry viewpoint who's there, as you said, who's going to be um, you know, making headlines off the track over that uh, over the next few days. You're right, David. It will be quite the not just the celeb spotting, but the um, the niche sports industry attendee spotter will, will be um, pricking their ears up. At yeah, this may one. maybe we'll try and do it in the uh, in the newsletter next week and pick out uh, mm. a few uh, people who we spot. Yeah. Um, actually, Tyson, from your perspective, you you worked at AS Monaco for a while. Did you know? Did you? ever think about sort of collaborating did you make the most of monaco grand prix week uh, as a club 
Yeah, it's a good question. We were always looking for ways, uh, you know, at the time to kind of cross over into, you know, other genres. And obviously you get a real spotlight with the Monaco Grand Prix. I think a little bit like some of the challenges they'll have in, in Vegas this weekend. I think there's there's always some operational challenge because the whole town shuts down. So, uh, but we we did, I and mean, we use it very much as a hosting event because of the, the pure demand. So we got some high end kind of um, guest CEOs, CMOs coming in as part of the program. There was also kind of some overlap into some of the Monaco events. The Prince and his charity uh, set up a few. Uh, charity events, for example, there's a, there was a football game about four days before the Grand Prix between uh, the drivers and by obviously the local driver, Leclerc. So that was for a charity that was played at the stadium. So there was an element, I think, of collaboration to try and push it out. And we're always looking to breach into that into that genre. So yeah, yeah, I think you harvest it as much as you can without detracting from its core its core event. If you're doing that now, Netflix might be in the market for uh, for the live rights to the, the you know drivers' football game. Yeah, yeah, you never know. You uh, never know. Well, I think we touched on that. One of the things that I think that's interesting with the bridge into you know obviously the Vegas Grand Prix, the and the the obviously the recently and as you reminded me, James, the, the currently taking place today, the Netflix Cup. Uh, you know, I think it's it's an interesting. I think it's another example of sport reaching out. It's incredible. I read some data recently that showed that. Um, you know the the it's over half of the American fan base attributes their entry and interest in Formula One to the Drive to Survive series, which is which is a phenomenal impact. I mean, it's a great show, but that really is phenomenal numbers. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Um, I want to talk about formats of um, sports competitions, and particularly go back to that point that we had in the 180 seconds of sports biz, the Cricket World Cup, welcoming its millionth fan through the turnstiles um, at this. Uh, Cricket World Cup. That's before the semi-final phase got underway. Um, the you know during the league format. I mean, a million fans. It feels like it's almost been you know one fan per day. Uh, it, it's a lot. It feels like we've gone through a lot of games. The Cricket World Cup format fit for purpose. Clearly, it's bringing in a lot of fans uh, on the ground. But have you guys been you know compelled, drawn in by this Cricket World Cup? Are you a cricket man, Tyson? I'm not, not to my core. I mean, other than the, obviously a general awareness of it for commercial reasons. But uh, if I might to Penneth from the, if you like, from the, the wider sport and the, the footballing side is, I think organisations are always wrestling with how they manage the appeal of the tournament on the ground, if you like, in the host country or countries or region with the television product. Because historically, we all know the television product has driven the value. Mm -hmm. So the media and the, the, the momentum you get and... You know, we were touching on cricket and rugby earlier. I think that that's really difficult to maintain a, a product, a television or a televisual or a media product around that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's tough. Maybe the people in on, on the ground enjoy being there five or six weeks, but you're going to be losing, I think, some of the momentum on the, on the television product. So... That's always the challenge. We talked to David and I talked to Alan Gilpin, the chief executive of World Rugby, last week um, for the podcast, and he was reflecting on the Rugby World Cup that's just gone. And happy to admit that the the format um, wasn't ideal, um, and then it's something that they're working on that they will change the next time out. The Rugby World Cup, in stark contrast to the Cricket World Cup, although it feels like it's gone on for just the same amount of time played games mainly on the weekend they had big gaps in between games didn't have games across most of the weekdays and alan felt like that meant that they struggled to get the kind of momentum that you're talking about tyson that struggled to sort of feel like this um 
this juggernaut that takes over a nation and you know sweeps um, people along with it. But it didn't really get going. Um, Cricket World Cup obviously have gone a different route. There's a player safety element, of a player rugby, welfare yeah. element in rugby where they gave every team the opportunity for a bye week, essentially, where they could have a rest. And uh, that was driven by player welfare at the cost, as you say, of tournament momentum. And it's something that uh, Alan Gilpin was saying will actually be rectified and has already effectively been rectified for the next uh, Rugby World Cup in 2027, the next Men's Rugby World Cup, in that it will be an expanded tournament, which will allow them to do what they need to do in terms of player welfare, but also have a more regular stream of matches and make sure that momentum is generated for the TV audience, to your point, uh, Tyson. I'm not sure that exists in cricket in the same way in terms of giving players rest. Well, well, I don't think you need to. It's not a contact sport, famously. Um, Although, God, your arms get stiff in cricket. They really do. Um, This league format that the Cricket World Cup has gone in for, where are there 10 teams playing each other uh, once and then four teams progress to the semi-final and final stage, seems like that is a format that the Champions League is kind of going towards uh, when the Champions League changes format after this year. Tyson, um, in your past, you spent um, many years working on the Champions League and European club football in general at team. When that change got passed through, obviously you weren't part of it um, when that change happened, but what was your sort of reaction to that? Did you think, great, we're in for um, uh, a new compelling feast of football? I had to understand it first because it was it was a very it was quite a big deviation from if you like from from the origins but from pre previous formats. Uh, I think it's funny the more you read into it, I think the more exciting it becomes. I, I was kind of uh, privileged to be involved with you know with the product you know at the core at the 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 cold face from uh, my early part of my career as you know from '95 and I, I worked for ten years on the Champions League and in that period it reinvented itself format and therefore commercially and televisually broadcasting models several times you know I, I joined and it would just just moved to 16 teams you know then it went to 24 then it went to 32 and and obviously the new format as you alluded to james is is coming in with the 3016 format on what they call the swiss the swiss league model i think it does create some elements of excitement because for a start everybody's playing i think i think i've got this right eight um we play eight different teams so there's more matches which is obviously good for the broadcasting revenue side we we know why that exists it's intelligent um but i think the key difference is one thing uefa and and team do very very well in this space is they're permanently evaluating through their own modeling which is which is impressive i think the the impact of all the key drivers of of a successful sporting event uh and that includes the the sporting uh credibility of it as well as the the should we say what's often referred to as lmo's live match opportunities which is the core value to the broadcasters and how much they'll pay etc because of the value they get to it to, to share with their audiences subscription or not so i think coming back to the point i think it's yes i think it's exciting because you'll see whatever your preferred team is playing eight different games uh eight different you know eight different clubs uh ranked from different so they'll have a couple of real big hitting games and they'll have you know some lower games so there won't be many dead games and it keeps the format alive till very late because ultimately of that 36 um 
you know, at 24, still involved at the next stage, you know, in one form or other, either pre-qualification or going into the next kind of qualification round. So I think it is exciting, but I think the key difference is it's been really well evaluated by team and UEFA, the ECA and stakeholders. And they've all said, okay, what drives it? Everything from sporting effectiveness and credibility to to the broadcast value. And I think that is not done across the board in a lot of rights holders. And I think that's where I... I think there's differences and they've pro- proven they can do that very well. Mm-hmm. Tyson, is there anything from that list that you want to uh, cover that we haven't covered already? I just think, I think leading on in a kind of a, a related point, I think the, the, the eternal wrestling, I think the, the Italian, uh, the ah, yeah, Italian the deal, rights, yeah, yeah that, that's interesting because I think what you see there is uh, whilst it's not so much a format point, I think it's a, a packaging thing, a uh, packaging perspective. I mean, there's kind of mixed reviews about the deal. I mean, the deals, as, as I think we're all aware, is is it's it's over a longer period of time. It's down to, it's from three years. The previous deal over a five season deal, and you know, I think it's a it's a, a minor reduction per season average. It's, it's around nine hundred million a season, um, and I think it's it's another example. I think of actually uh, taking raising our hat to the successful delivery of of the Premier League which coincidentally started the same year as the Champions League in 92 93 but the job that's been done on that from an evolution and the packaging because you can see from the top 5 leagues in Europe and obviously I've, I've worked in two of those is the positions 2 to 5 are just desperately trying to catch up with the Champions uh, with the um with the Premier League to fund their sporting objectives to be able to buy the best players and i think what's happened with the italian deal from what i've seen it's first of all it wasn't a unanimous decision by the clubs which suggests a certain discussion um although it was a majority and i think secondly you could argue that in there's a balance between getting the product right and and, and the the frequency of the product and actually having um, a stability because all clubs want it's a very volatile world financially for owners and for clubs and clubs want to have stability so on one side they'll be happy on the ownership to say hey we've got five years guaranteed revenue although looking what happened in league one you know with the, in the bankruptcy of, of media pro not necessarily but i mean i think with dazun who've got the majority of the rights and um and Sky Italia, I think they'll be they'll be solid. But I think it's just another reach out. I think for me, the negative if they've they've mortgaged five years, which I think is is quite brave because with the advancement of technology as well as media rights, you were alluding to it, James, with the the newer players coming on five years ago. Would we have been saying that the zone is a going to be a player in the space? Probably not. So I think to mortgage five years and to put all your games as live matches to your broadcasters is is quite a brave call. They're selling a lot of their future. I think that's a brave call. Yes, they've got stability, but I think those leagues, it's a desperate attempt to keep catching up with the Premier League, but also... I think they need to look at their outside, their non, their international rights because it's they're dwarfed. They 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 get about two hundred million euros, I think, a season for their international rights, which and the Premier League's ten times that. So I think that's the real opportunity for those leagues to catch it's, up. It's worth saying on Syria that they have made a concerted effort in the last um, eighteen months, two years, to. Um, bring activity to the US. They're clearly looking at that market as one where they can get an uplift in media rights, what with the kind of general societal kind of Italian-US connection. Mm. One further quick sort of question on this, and then and then we should move on. What's the next step, do you think, for a league like Syria A, where they have literally given everything away in this domestic rights package? Every single game across a longer deal term, 
they will not be able to talk to the clubs again about getting a, a new, better package for at least three years. The next step, and as you sort of alluded to, there wasn't uh, unanimity amongst the clubs in accepting this. You're going to have some disgruntled clubs in there, and my betting is that those are the bigger ones who might want a return to selling their own rights, right? Individ- you know, is that the way? Is that the way that a sort of destiny will work for media rights packages? You consolidate and then you fragment again. Is that is that what's coming up? Do you think? Yeah, it's a good question, and I know one of the discussion points was you know the direct to consumer discussion, which effectively, unless there's something in the small print, they've they've effectively you know ruled out as you say for a period of time. I think there's value in that potentially. I think what clubs need to do, or, or collective clubs uh, formats like leagues, is they need to make sure, like we were touching on before, they need to make sure the product is still compelling rather than just lots of it everywhere on different channels. So I think you've got to really work hard. That could be collaboration like we're seeing with the Netflix Cup or the, the recent crossover with some of the boxing UFC discussions. You've got to keep widening who your product talks to and deepening that, that engagement, which ultimately you come back and monetize, which I think that's what they've got to do. Tyson, should we talk about you? Let's talk about Tyson. Um, Tyson, you're just coming off the back of almost four years, a four-year stint as a chief commercial officer, Um, first at AS Monaco and and more recently at Nottingham Forest. Looking at that period of time at the coalface of revenue generation in top-level football, right? This is the hardest job in a football club, I think. What do you look back on with pride what what would you say is your biggest achievement over that period yeah it's a good question i think i've been privileged to work with some with some good people in in the organizations i've worked with and i think you know there's a couple of standout points to me i, I think uh, when i was in monaco um we sold the the first new front of shirt sponsor for over 20 years uh, when we brought eToro and not only brought eToro onto the front of shirt but we upgraded them from a, a global partnership that was already in-house we had with them and then we took them to front of shirt and then ultimately we took them to training kit. So I think that was the first change in front of shirt for over 20 years for Monaco. Historically, as probably everyone remembers, has been Fedcom, which was like a special relationship. The two ownerships of the club and and uh, the Fedcom organization were, knew each other well. Um, so that was one of those historical elements. So I was, that was, I think, uh, an important and uh, achievement I'm very proud of. Not, not just because it was obviously a, a selling side and my job was to sell. But I think it was also part of the strategy to move the direction of the type of partners and partnerships we had to open up the new world into more digital data, um, you know, whether it's NFT land, Web3, however you'd categorize it, but to bring these kind of partners in and evolve the, the culture of who we sell to. A lot of people, I think, who do big selling jobs in sport will often talk about the evolution of a partnership and upgrading a partner over several sort of selling cycles as a big achievement. It's almost a bigger achievement than just getting a new partner in for a one-off period and then off they go again because you are showing that the partnership has been successful, right, over over successive kind of periods. You're also demonstrating value at several different levels. What's your sort of, how, what's the Tyson Henley upsell? What do you, you know, how do you do it? 
Yeah, it, it's. I, I think that it's about doing a lot of the basics. I think you 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 look. You know, I think gone are the days where you say, "Hey, do you want a few tickets and a bit of media exposure?" And you know, and we'll see you on match days. I think you've got to go in now with really. I know it sounds a cliche, but really understanding the client, mm-hmm. and, you, and you go with them as a as a, a business solution. You say, "Okay, we we supplement your business by generating. It could be revenue, it could be contacts, it could be data. More and more, it's data that's being discussed." Um, and I think you understand their business, and then you go in with a business solution to augment and improve their business. Once you understand that, and you've got to bring in the right people who also understand that, and, and what used to be, I don't call it account servicing, and and you know account management. I call it um, revenue protection, mm. and that's my philosophy when I'm in I'm in a club because I say your role there is to actually pr- protect and grow the revenue from these clients, and and the, and the teams I have are always KPI'd on that basis. And so I think that the philosophy is very simple. It's it's let's understand the business and see that we can add to that that partner's business, and then you go about doing it. Monaco had a very digital, very closely with the CMO, and we we had a very strong digital agenda to drive the because you, you never fill the stadium at Monaco. It's a very unusual place, as you all know. Um, but what we did have is a very high powered interest in Monaco as a brand globally. So then the the digital growth of the club over two years was phenomenal. Does the Premier League open doors that Ligue 1 doesn't in terms of access to brands, access to prospective partners? Yes, definitely. I mean, it, the global footprint and, and the way that we alluded to earlier, that it's been you know very, very well managed and nurtured uh, without being detrimental to, to the product is, is means you do get the global footprint. I mean, you've seen from the, the summer, the summer series in the US with the clubs that went over and that mandate will continue obviously in the build up to 2026. Um, that's just one example, regional, not so long ago, it was, you know, in Asia with the Premier League Cup. Etc. So it does because you get a global footprint, which you can then region, regionalize. I mean, one of the things I was very proud of at Monaco is bringing in the technology with, with some partnership with TGI Sport to to really bring in regionalized LED boards so you could sell separately to the Asian region because we had partnerships there. But going back to the Premier League, yes, it, it, it does. It's a different beast. It's by far the most commercial league in, in, in the world and in football. And that that, that does help. Looking across those uh, two jobs that you held at those two uh, very different clubs, I guess, wh- what would you say was the most challenging moment? Yeah, it was, there was a couple. I think uh, with, with the kind of the, the Monaco side, it was, um, you know, I think the onset of COVID, obviously. I know we, we've all got our COVID stories, but the French League was unique in the top five. The, it actually cancelled the remaining 10 matches. Mm which was not easy. So I think that period was very testing and challenging even for the most experienced uh, guys on the team to effectively reposition, renew in some cases um, and renegotiate deals with when you've lost, lost, you know, whatever it is, 25% of your season's inventory and some partners was the end of their contract. So that would, that was testing. We came through it well. I was very pleased with the way we came through it and the team reacted. But that would, that was definitely, uh, I think, a, a, one of the most challenging periods. And then I probably related to that is, again, some very positive achievements in my, my time at Forest, selling all the main assets and, you know, on the commercial side for the Premier League for the first time. And, uh, but also nurturing, I think, some strong local businesses and, and bringing them onto training kit and, and, and sleeve. People like Idea Gen and Eon, both great brands, both with local hubs of, of employees. Um, but that was, um, it was challenging doing that 
in an environment when the the Premier League security of the club wasn't certain. So that was a different kind of challenge because the your floors moving underneath you all the time, and that that was a challenge. Titan, you, you've only relatively recently left Forest. You did almost a year there, which I think it's probably fair to say isn't as full a tenure as you might have liked at the beginning of that. How and why does a job like that come to an end? It varies. I think the most important thing to do is you have to make sure there's an alignment with what ownership and the ultimate stakeholders in, in any organization, uh, whoever that is, uh, what, what their expectations are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and there are different ways um, of, I think, implementing that. You know, some owners will just say, I, I don't want to put, you know, a penny into a club. Um, it's got to kind of wash its own face. Others will say, I don't care what the value of a deal is. It's about the quality of the brands we bring in. Others will say, I want to build a reputation and, as an innovator. That was a discussion we had a lot of Monaco. Um, all of those elements. So it really it really is a mixture. So I think the roles come to an end for different reasons. I think the most important thing is alignment. If you get the alignment right, I think it, it, it makes sense in perpetuity. But there also is a natural cycle, I think, for any, uh, I think, any uh, CCO. Mm-hmm. That alignment with ownership or with, you know, top level leadership at any particular club and in any particular organisation, I guess, when you're at a senior level, that's something a lot of people, when you think about leadership and management, you don't necessarily think about managing up. You've worked for a lot of different organisations. You've worked for a lot of different owners. What is your approach to managing upwards yeah it's too i mean i think the the management upwards is related to i think the 360 degree management so my view my philosophy is you go in you go in from top down and from bottom up if you're first day one effectively metaphorically you're doing a a proper audit of the commercial propensity and 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 capability of a a club let's say it's a club and and so the top down bit is is it's the alignment with any ownership uh in 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 monaco for example it worked for a family office of the owner the owner was more directly involved because of the levels of sums involved with the sporting side and purchasing of players they had plugged into the sporting director on a daily basis almost um the commercial side was a little bit more through the family office and the reason i'm saying that i think is step one is you've got to say like i alluded to what 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 do the ownership or the stakeholders or shareholders of the club what do they want to achieve do they want to not be writing checks every year do they want to have a certain should we say profile as a result of this for the club or for themselves um what's and so you understand that then Make sure you're aligned. Is it about profit? Is it about you know um, you know prestige? Is it about growth? Is it about the sporting side? Do you, do you want to be a feeder club to another club? You know, so I think that's got to be understood. What the owners want to achieve, and then you make sure, or you try and make sure, there's a three to five year business plan in. Then you can all build. And, and a lot of the work I did at both clubs, particularly in Monaco, was was exactly that. It was making sure there was a five year plan that was involved, which all the senior management team bought into, and we all did. Then all the resources feed off that. So I think it's making sure you understand what the owners say they want and hoping there's consistency in that. And then from the bottom up, you then look at, for me, I, I look at a, a process. It, to me, it's, it's the three P's. It's, it's, it's people, product, and processes. And you make sure that you've got the right elements. And I think data and digitization is, is a key factor now. It's, it's, the, it's the, new, the new goal if you get it right. 
Uh, and I think you just make sure that the the people are in the places are, are fit for purpose. And I don't mean to say that means you get rid of them. I mean, that maybe they're better in a different role. You might have a great hospitality manager who's great with clients, but he doesn't necessarily want to get involved with the the, the crunching and the strategy for the growth of the product and, and the revenue. So, but I think coming back to your question, the ownership side, it's about a light alignment of what, what are they in it for? What do they want to achieve? Right, Tyson, let's cut to the chase. Uh, where is the money? Uh, where is the next pot? Is it on you now? Yeah, where's the next <laughs> Where's the next pot of revenue? Where should football, particularly football, chief commercial officers, commercial directors, where should they be looking? I, I mean, it's, it's one word and it's often abused or, or it's swept over, but it is to me data, data-led, uh, data-informed. It is more more the view I have. What I mean by that is I, I think football brings so many different silos of opportunity, both commercially and organically. You know, it, it brings performance, it brings technical side, you know, it brings values, it, it, it brings, you know, several different kind of element, content, uh, et cetera. And, and I think the, the next, as you referred to, next kind of pot of revenues are actually not necessarily a separate pot, although they can be. They're more about actually linking all the pots that exist together better. And, and I think, therefore, you've got to the starting point. You, t- you take a club like Forest, a phenomenal club historically, great kind of history from uh, both the characters that were in it, people like Brian Clough, um, or the achievements of the two European Cups, etc. You know, there's a great, there's a big, latent global fan base out there that want to talk to that club one way or the other every day. So you've got to make sure you you know who they are, where they are, what are you allowed to talk to them? Have you got the right data on them? You know, you make sure you first party own data, get that data and make sure you've got control of it. So you can then build a monetization or at least connection. So I think it's about connecting your fan base. And an example recently at uh, Forest was we implemented um, a basically a new membership scheme to connect the fans that that not just in a revenue point of view but in in a, a members uh, only grew by about five to six times for this season because we worked out where they were what they needed and did a lot of work with the the, the marketing director there as well to bring that to life and that's one one small example and, and I think the point is the next pot of gold is probably making sure all the pots are connected or can talk to each other that that's the secret for me Connect the pots. Connect the pots. Should we do a brief quick fire round? Yeah, very brief. Go on then. Dream job in sport. It's a good question. I think I maybe I've already had it, but I think and we're all we've all got I think privileged positions of working in a sport or a very dynamic, interesting industry. I say I think to me, any job that gives you experience at the coal face so for me my roles at uefa and team were pretty close to that i think to lead a commercial program in two of the world's biggest sporting properties where you can actually still be pitch side i still get tingles from the champions league music when you like to be the groundsman at your favorite club or something tyson (laughs) do you know sometimes james yes for for a couple of weeks that sounds just about right (laughs) um text or voice note uh text a bit more traditional good (laughs) <laughs> I'd like that answer. Uh, WhatsApp or email? It's a WhatsApp for quick, quick fire, keep things moving, dyna- dynamic discussions. Email when it gets a little bit more formal and structured. Yeah, same for me. Yeah, WhatsApp for business, email for competition entries, things like that. Yeah. You're a big competition guy? Big time. <laughs> um, what's next for you, Tyson? You're in a um, 
I mean, I'm not going to say you're in a, per- a period of idleness. You're, uh, you're, you're raring to go, but what's, what have you got up your sleeve? I'm having, do you know the nice thing about it since I formally left the club just a few weeks ago formally, but it's, um, it's, I've been having a, a couple of conversations. Um, I think I'm definitely will stay, one of them's developing quite quickly. So I'll definitely be in sport, definitely be football related, but perhaps a slightly different, uh, slightly different role. So yeah. That it's but definitely in sport. Get your guesses into us as to what Tyson Henley is going to do next. James.emmett at leadersinsport.com, david.cushnan at leadersinsport.com. And uh, I think we will do a prize if anyone gets it right. Oh, nice. Yeah. TBC on the prize. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tyson, what have you been... Um, uh, before we wrap up, have you, have you watched anything? Have you read anything recently that um, you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Yeah, good. I, there's a couple of things. Of uh, one old, I've watched again by coincidence, and one is quite new. I've I've seen recently, as I think most people probably listening to this might have, um, the Beckham documentary yeah. on Netflix, yeah. which I I really enjoyed. I have to say, and I also I also watched again. I don't know what prompted it, but for the first time in about two three years, I watched uh, Moneyball mm. again. Uh, does we, it does it stand up? Yeah, it it does. I think I think on the Moneyball point, I, it just it just reminded me that was obviously even before it got kind of exported to European cultural thinking a bit more in business. That that you could see that was the start of saying, okay, let's look at data as an element of our decision making in a much more structured way, even if it's shot down. And you could it's interesting apart from the fascination of that particular case study. But then how that bled into so much more thinking, and now we've got so much more data. So that was that was a good reminder. Can I posit an unpopular opinion about the Beckham documentary, which I loved, by the way, really enjoyed it. Sounds like you're about to. Yeah. So Alex Ferguson, toxic boss, right? Very lauded person within our industry, obviously. You won't hear many people say um, he wasn't very good at his job. But watching that documentary, and in this era where things like mental health are much more consciously thought about, even how Alex Ferguson talks about how he managed David Beckham is controlling, manipulative, the environment that he creates. You know, you've got Gary Neville talking about how Alex Ferguson did such and such a toxic environment to control everyone within it. And David Beckham is clearly quite damaged by it. That's my that's my tuppence on that. Alex Ferguson, not a good boss. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a take. Stockholm syndrome, right? He's creating Stockholm syndrome where they all worship him. Of a, a manager of his time. Mm. What have you been watching, David, or reading? The one I have watched in recent weeks that I loved. And I think the reason I loved it is because I knew nothing about it going in, was uh, a series called The Ride, which is available on uh, Amazon Prime Video. And this is... Roller coasters? It's not about roller coasters. It's about the professional bull riders. It's a behind-the-scenes documentary about the PBR in the US, which takes over these arenas across um, certain parts of the United States. And it is uh, as much about the lifestyle and the training and the, you know, the backstories of the the modern day cowboys mixed with the most extraordinary action from the events where, you know, they've got eight seconds to hold on to a raging bull. 
Um, it is it's a it's a brilliantly produced series, and I really enjoyed it because it was it is something that uh, up until that point I knew nothing about. And that's why, David, even with your hair dryer treatment, you will um, you'll prove your value to the company because Amazon, of course, are a, a very important client of ours. So um, very nicely done. I went to Baby Cinema the other day, David. Do you know what that is? It's a cinema for babies. Kind of, yeah. It's a, it's a screening um, that you can only attend if you have a baby with you. But it's an adult scream, an adult yeah, film. I wouldn't use the word adult. No, it's a grown-up um, film. It's a, yeah, well, it could be anything, uh, okay. within reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I watched a film uh, at a cinema in Brighton, um, and I had my new baby with me, and the film was called Nyad. Uh, which is now on Netflix. It was a it's a Netflix production, um, and Nyad is an amazing film. It's um, the story of Diana Nyad. Have you seen it, Tyson? I have actually. Yeah, recently. It's amazing very story. Good, very good. I, I think Diana Nyad is probably something of a, a personality in the US. But she's a retired sort of swimming champion who does marathon swimming, and she sets off on the kind of challenge of a lifetime at the age of sixty to complete the marathon swim that she never managed in her prime, um, which is to swim from Cuba to Florida, 103 miles, five English channels, um, through uh, 48 hours, sharks, jellyfish, all sorts of danger. And it's one of these stories of kind of um, extreme physical endeavor. I think the director or the producer is the same guy who made Free Solo. Um, which is one of those climbing, amazing climbing documentaries. A really great film. And actually, I thought an interesting way, I suppose it's a little bit like Moneyball, in that it's a dramatisation, a full dramatisation, not a documentary. And really, and great cast in it, Annette uh, Benning, Jodie Foster. Fabulous film, recommended to everyone. We'll give it a watch. Netflix? Correct. Excellent. Excellent. Great. With that, um, I think we should draw a line under it, shouldn't we, David? Do um, get in touch with all your um, comments, criticisms, complaints, suggestions for Tyson. Obviously, um, put your answers in as to what Tyson's going to do next. And your best sport business films. Your best sport business films. I'm James Emmett. This is David Kushnan. Goodbye. Goodbye. And Tyson Henley, goodbye to you. Goodbye. Thank you.